let's let's slow down, let's love more and give ourselves a space to really give the attention that a relationship of reciprocity with the earth deserves. Welcome back to the Sustainable Jungle Podcast. I'm Joy and today I'm speaking with the incredible Ayana Young, founder of For the Wild. Based among the beautiful redwoods of Northern California, For the Wild is a movement, or as Ayana puts it, a love song to disappearing wild places. Among many things, Ayana and her team host a podcast with some of the most courageous voices of our time. These are the phenomenal people out there fighting for the protection of wild places. For the Wild also runs their own activist and restoration activities, including the holistic restoration of a redwood forest. Do listen out for this particular part of the conversation, as it was a revelation to me that not all tree planting is equal. We also chat about Ayana's background, her journey, and her passion for old growth forests. As always, you can find the show notes for this episode at sustainablejungle.com forward slash podcast. We'll also add all the ways that you can support Ayana's work, so please do check it out. Now let's talk trees with Ayana Young. Hello, Ayana. Welcome. Such an honor to have a fellow podcaster on the show, although I have to say I feel like a little bit of a fangirl because your podcast is so very impressive. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. Um, yeah, I, you know, we all start off, I think, similar, just wanting to get these messages out into the world. And I feel so happy to be talking with you today. And thank you for being committed to the earth in the way that you are. <laughs> Thank you. Now let's set the scene. Can you tell us a little bit about you? Where were you born and where did you grow up? Yeah, so I was born in Orange County, California, and I was not raised to be an earth defender or an activist. I had a really <laughs> a non-earthy upbringing, I'd say. Um, I lived in a place where there really was not a lot of wild nature anywhere to be seen. I remember there was a um, a wetland that was about maybe three miles from my home, but it had oil rigs all around it. And then more and more track homes continued to eat up the wetland. And so I grew up in a place that I felt was a bit like the twilight zone, where it was just suburban sprawl and industrial development anywhere you turned, but then there was the ocean. And although the ocean is known for its beauty and surfing where I grew up, it was also speckled with offshore drilling rigs. So I grew up in a place that also, uh, along with its just rampant suburban sprawl, it was really focused on status symbols like fancy cars and um, just a lot of shallow human obsessions with materialism. And I never felt good in that environment. Not that I knew how to speak about it when I was younger, but I definitely felt like things weren't right here. And I was always pushing the boundaries of what I knew and always trying to be a little rebel, a little revolutionary <laughs> on my own with one of my friends, Lorna, who was uh, really my friend who we would, you know, go over to each other's houses after school and look at magazines like Adbusters or watch Michael Moore documentaries. Or 
I remember the documentary Super Size Me came out when I was in high school and we would kind of get into these deep discussions of the ills of the world. So yeah, I feel like I was a bit of an outcast growing up, but happily one as I look back at it now. And there were little bits of going into nature here and there. I remember going to Yosemite in California, Central California, when I was maybe 12. And I was totally amazed by the rock cliffs and the waterfalls and the forest because it was something that I didn't grow up around. And these little voices that I guess are quite big voices, they just kept calling to me over the years, I think, and asking me to see them, listen to them, hear them, follow the threads, be courageous, and step outside what I knew. And so, uh, yeah, that's a bit about my upbringing, very different from what it is now. And so whenever people feel like they're, you know, they could be like, oh, but this person does so much, or they're an activist, and I don't know, or I don't know if I can do that. I like to share my upbringing a little bit, because I don't think that you have to be born into it, or even be born into a community of activists. I really think that each and every one of us can be called and really have our own initial solo journey into something that can build a community around us and what we believe in. That's incredible. You were obviously a very sort of in touch child. You know, it's, it's, I find it quite fascinating because I've often commented on this podcast that most of the people that we speak to seem to have had this deep connection to nature somewhere in their childhood. And that's sort of what's instilled in them this passion. And it's always worried me because I've just thought, you know, how much, you know, like what percentage of the population are growing up in cities where they don't have access to nature? And and what is it that's going to help us spark their interest and their passion for protecting places that are, are not buildings? You know, it sounds like it was just part of you that somehow that happened. It wasn't, there wasn't a particular event. It was just who you were. What do you think? Do you think that, you know, there needs to be um, or there's sort of a way for us to engage more people who are growing up in, in places that are disconnected from nature? I don't think that somebody needs to be raised in nature to learn to care about nature. I think that there's nature anywhere or everywhere still. It's sprouting through the concrete cracks. It's coming up through the walls of old buildings. I mean, it's around us wherever we are, but if we maybe don't have the awareness to see it is I think the question. So I do think that educating young kids, if they're not, if they don't have the same type of access to wild nature that some people have, I think that access and I do think that building connections with places do really help us fight for it. If I had never spent time in the temperate rainforest, which where I really fight for is between Northern California to Southeast Alaska on the Pacific Slope. It's a place of, some people call it Cascadia. It's a place of large trees and ferns and ocean, and it's spectacular. Now, if I had never spent time here and I didn't understand the massive resource extraction projects with mining, logging, pipeline expansions, Um, and I had never really somatically experienced it, I probably wouldn't be devoting myself and devoting my life to protecting this place. So I do think that there is an element 
um, that people do need to have experiences and people need to fall in love with a place in order to fight for it. But I don't think that that means that just because you don't live in a place doesn't mean you can't care for it. And I think it also means that wherever you live, you need to care for. And in terms of living in, in cities and so forth, there's so much that can be done in cities or even suburbs because people are much closer to each other than in rural areas. Community organizing can be faster. It can be more accessible. You can get on the subway. You know, you can go and you can be in a meeting almost any night of the week. I, I lived in New York City and Los Angeles and San Francisco and outside of Portland. And I remember just feeling the possibilities that human community could offer in those places. And so I never like to kind of talk down about living in cities in that way, because I think there's a lot of power that can be harnessed. And I think there's a lot of things that people in cities do for nature. Most of most, you know, organizations and stuff are stationed within cities. They're not, you know, in the middle of what people think of as nowhere. Um, and I think even more than quote unquote nature, like plants and, you know, whatever people think of nature, I think that people, no matter where they are, need to tap into their inner nature, which to me is intuition. And so I didn't grow up with uh, access or with knowledge really of external nature, but I think why I was so connected as a child is because I was really tapping into a deep intuition of a, a feeling sense. And all of us have that feeling sense. All of that, all of us have that inner nature intuition that guides us. But with industrial civilization, consumer capitalism, social media, all of these distractions really take us away from being able to hear our intuition. And I think that, you know, and I don't want to, I don't want to speak to what people's intuitions are telling them because I don't know. But I would imagine that people's intuitions are similar to my own when it comes to how we're relating to the earth. Mm -hmm. And even if you're not an activist or an environmentalist or somebody who has studied sustainability, if you're really listening to your intuition, you'll probably get a sense that things aren't right. You'll probably get a sense that, wow, you know, there's a lot of smoke in the air. There's a lot of pollution. There's a lot of trash. There's a lot of animals that are dying. And that isn't right. Now, how we follow that thread to figure out how we can be engaged in the work to make things right is a whole other question. But I think even just opening those doorways in our mind, no matter where we are physically, I really think it's uh, more of an inward journey than anything else. Now, let's chat about For the Wild. Your email signature says that For the Wild is a love song to disappearing wild places. And of course, indeed it is. Uh, you guys cover so much and you do so much for wild places. Could you give us an overview of the, the various and many impressive projects that sit underneath For the Wild? Well, thank you. And uh, happily, I will talk about this romance that I have with this work, which is For the Wild. And yeah, I would say that, you know, going back to my childhood, there was this intuition that I was following. And Eventually, it led me to Occupy Wall Street in New York City, and that was really the catalyst for this work that is for the wild because it just 
catapulted me into a completely other way of being. I basically quit my job. I dropped out of grad school and I became a full-time organizer. And at the time, I didn't know what I do know now, but I knew enough to feel really impassioned. And so I first started, about a year after Occupy, I started a podcast called Unlearn and Rewild. And I was unlearning, I was rewilding, I was shattering my identity, I was stripping my conditioning, I was awakening to the realities of the world and going, holy hell, what have we gotten ourselves into? I Everything I've been sold is a lie, and I really need to look to people that I trust to help guide me through this crazy time. Time. And so uh, a few years after doing Unlearn Your Wild, there was a shift in me. And I said, okay, you know, I've unlearned, I've rewilded, of course, not completely and probably never, but I felt like I had done enough of my own inner journey and outer journey. You know, I moved out to living in a tent, uh, no running water, or electricity for two years. And I basically still live like a camping life at this point. I mean, I have a a structure, but it's still pretty raw. And I decided, you know what, at this point, I'm for the wild. I am devoting myself to stand for the wild. And when I think about the wild, I think about places that are not under the bricks of industrial civilization Mm -hmm. a place that can relax and being itself without having the stress of resource extraction poured upon it and so I was thinking okay I wanted to transition the podcast which is a huge part of what we do for the wild we have an incredible team that works tirelessly week in and week out preparing content for interviews speaking with indigenous leaders and scientists and philosophers and herbalists and all sorts of people, thought leaders about the predicament we're in and how to be in relationship to it and to each other and to the earth. But as much as I felt so fulfilled by these conversations through the podcast, I also knew that I had to do something tangible. I didn't want to just be like an armchair philosopher and have all these ideas about things. I wanted to actually be engaging with the physical world. And so I created the nonprofit um, along with the podcast to be able to do land-based restoration and conservation work. And so uh, what that looks like in terms of the projects at the moment is I am working on a conservation project in Northern California to protect a watershed in the coastal Redwood Range uh, from the headwaters to the confluence of this river system. And I'm also doing a, working on a conservation project up in Alaska for the Copper River Delta, which would basically protect this incredibly amazing, pristine delta, three million acre delta from being uh, extracted for coal. And they would have to blow up the mountain, the mountaintop removal project to get to this coal. And it would completely destroy this habitat that is so vast and so magical that I can hardly believe that I've even seen it with my own eyes. And then the other part of 
the work apart from conservation is the restoration. And I started a project called the One Million Redwoods Project, which we had a Kickstarter for. And I'm building a, what I like to call a living library. Um, in other words, it's a native species nursery. And we are collecting different genetics of species from the temperate rainforest region. And we're growing them out here um, and propagating them for other projects outside of the nursery to help bring back or restore to heal damaged forest ecosystems in the temperate rainforest range. And that could be from logging, clear cutting, um, mining, other resource extraction projects, just different types of industrial development. But I will also say that as much as I would love to sing the praises of restoration and just dance in the romance of what restoration could be, I also want to speak really honest and truthfully about it because I think that with environmentalism, we've gotten ourselves in a pickle where we're kind of using the tools of marketing to sell ideas, which I don't think is bad in and of itself. But a lot of the solutions and ideas that are being sold to us from the environmental sector have a lot of consequences that aren't talked about. So we're really only hearing one side of the story. And so that's why I want to be honest about restoration right now and saying, I think that we should be doing something, but it's very challenging to learn what it is that can be done that isn't uh, detrimental in other ways. Like uh, nurseries, for instance, take a lot of resources, whether it's plastic pots, irrigation, water that evaporates very quickly, soil that's imported with perlite that has to be mined. All of these things come from somewhere. And so I have been in a quandary of, uh, of research and development for this nursery. And we're actually trying to do away with pots altogether and, um, and go directly into the ground, creating kind of like a clay in ground pot. And I, and I could really go off on this for hours and I won't. But I just want to say that in terms of restoration, it's not a silver bullet approach. There also is the restoration industrial complex that I didn't know anything about when I started restoration. I thought anything that had to anything that said that it was restoring the forest should mean that it's good, right? <laughs> well, yeah, it's not because the fossil fuel industry is still very tied to it, and so is the logging industry. So I feel like I've been this little seed in the restoration movement, bringing it back to that young, rebellious, revolutionary self being like, no, I'm not going to do it in these ways. And that doesn't mean that I know the answer and I may never know the answer, but I'm going to continue building relationships with folks that are trustworthy with the indigenous people of this area. And I'm going to keep looking for solutions that feel intuitively and ethically and all the, you know, all those ways um, that feel more right than the ways that I feel like I've been offered through my own research. And then the media making. And the media making to me is really about shifting consciousness. It's about uplifting voices from the front lines. Yeah, it's trying to shift the paradigm and really help us feel less alone in this time. On the restoration point, I think that is just fascinating because it, it highlights, like you said, we're in a pickle. We've managed to get ourselves as humanity into a place where even doing the right thing is still the wrong thing. And how, you know, how did we get there? It's, it feels crazy. What I understand from, from watching some of your videos on this, 
on this point about the one million redwoods is that it's also not just as straightforward as as planting trees and sticking some trees in the ground you have to really think about the soil and you have to make sure that the diversity of the plant life around the trees is right and all that you know has that been quite a journey to learn all of that additional complexity in terms of getting the forest right Ooh, sister has it yeah. <laughs> has it it is so complex and you know it's tree planting has kind of become this thing where yeah, it kind of seems like, well, what could be wrong with tree planting? Yeah. And it seems like it's all it's all good. And it's really, tree planting is being marketed all over the world. And big corporations are saying, hey, we plant trees. You know, it's it's really something that's utilized. And, and honestly, we probably will see a lot more tree planting into the future because of climate change. Um, and we're already seeing it throughout the globe as a way to sequester carbon. And absolutely, trees sequester carbon. There's no doubt about that. And I am much more invested in planting trees as a way to mitigate climate change rather than spraying weird uh, aluminum chemicals into the sky. Through, uh, <laughs> so I, I, like, I just also want to say, well, I do believe in tree planting. And I, in a way, believe in you know, if I had to pick between non-holistic tree planting and geoengineering, I'd still pick non-holistic tree planting. But in terms of my own project, I'm not going about it in a corporate mass industrialized way. And how I kind of explain this to people is like, you know, maybe we could take a bakery, for instance, like, maybe there's this bakery that's so good and they make the best bread. It's a little mom and pop shop. And it's just like the quality is amazing and it's delicious and it's great. And you love this bread, but then they get a little popular and they have another bread shop and then another bread shop, another bread shop. And now suddenly they're, you know, the biggest bread shop in Australia or wherever. And most likely that bread does not taste as good because they're having to get more grain. They're having like the production isn't as like the quality goes down basically is what I'm trying to say. I see that over and over again. So what I'm really more of an advocate for in terms of the tree plantings, I would rather see a bunch of small scale community driven tree plantings that are really about quality connection relationship over these massive tree plantings that are not concerned with biodiversity and they're not concerned with genetic diversity. And, and just to explain the difference between those two things, like, so when we talk about biodiversity in a forest, um, for instance, the forest I'm in right now, I'm looking out the window, I see redwood, I see madrone, I see huckleberry, I see Oregon grape, I see um, sorrel, you know, I could go on and on. Yeah. Now, in these big industrialized tree plantings, a lot of them are sprayed with poison, so they're clear cut, they're sprayed with poison. Um, and then they go in and they'll plant one tree. And usually it's the profitable tree that could get cut down later for lumber, like Douglas fir or a type of pine. And so you'll have thousands of acres of one tree over and over and over and over again. That's dangerous for many reasons. And that's really not the site of a healthy forest. So that's biodiversity when you're just like having one monocrop species over and over again. Now, genetic diversity is also an issue because in these big tree plantings, a lot of the trees are not grown from seed. And not that that's always a bad thing for trees to be cloned, 
and cloning is like when you're taking a a branch or like a a stem from a tree and then you're putting it into some type of hormone and then you're growing it out and that means that that clone has the same genetics as the tree that it was cut, uh, the branch it was taken from and it's not i and i don't want to speak completely negatively about cloning in general but if we're having full forest like like thousand acre forest or even a hundred acre forest that's all cloned from one or two or three trees that's an issue like that isn't how nature is doing it and so what that does is like if there's a blight if there's a bug if there's some type of stress that's put on let's say the forest and you don't have biodiversity and you don't have genetic diversity that forest is much more susceptible to not being able to have the type of immune system response that is needed when something comes at it. And when we're looking at climate change coming more and more intense every year, we really need our ecosystems to have strong immune systems. Mm. And I'm kind of like interchanging words right now because I just want to talk about it colloquially. And so to me, like having a really focusing on the biodiversity, focusing on small scale community projects is so much more beneficial to the forest, but it's also beneficial to the humans that are interacting with the forest. Because again, like it's about relationships and who are, the forest is going to be protected because of the people who will protect it. Like for instance, if you, you could put a, like in the United States right now, there's land all over the country that's been put into some type of protection, protection policy, whether it's like a, a state park or a BL, like a BLM national monument or something. But if the government or a corporation wants to open that back up for logging or drilling, they can, and they use these mechanisms that are BS to be able to open it back up to resource extraction. But who are the people who are actually going to protect those places? It's the people on the ground. So if the people on the ground have stronger connections to the land, they're going to fight to keep that land protected over time. So I'm, I'm kind of talking about restoration from a lot of different uh, angles. I, I don't know if I answered the original question about restoration. I can get more into that in detail. But to me, it goes back to being in relationship and also slowing down enough to seeing what is detrimental because right now we are in an urgent crisis, no doubt. Like we're losing 200 plus species a day. Climate chaos is getting more chaotic every year. And it is true that there is urgency to it. But I think when we act out of that anxiety filled urgency, we're going to make decisions that are not thinking seven generations ahead because we actually need the slowness and we need to build the relationships in order to even understand how to move forward. And I'll say the other thing too that I find about kind of more conventional restoration (laughs) is that most people don't really know what they're doing. And what I mean by that is we've never been in a time like this. So even scientists are guessing to an extent. Like there is no way that we're like, this is the way and this is how we are going to fix it. People are guessing at how we can fix it. But if we're guessing in this quick, urgent way, again, like I think it's going to be detrimental. The other thing too with restoration is that you have to ask, what are we restoring to? And a lot of um, academia wants to restore to to pre-colonization. But 
we're not pre-colonization mm-hmm. and we actually don't have the climate of pre-colonization. We don't have the same rainfall. We don't have the same weather patterns. So I think that's another thing to really consider along with biodiversity and genetic diversity, but also considering how can we really think about what the future will hold, although we don't know and it is uncertain, but what, how can we really take that into consideration and try to give the forest or whatever ecosystem we're healing the best chance knowing that the climate is going to be changing. So I know I just threw another wrench in the <laughs> response there, but uh, I'll pause where I'm at because this is like a total wormhole and I'm happy to geek out on it, but I also don't want to like send people on a, on a wild goose chase. <laughs> well, you clearly are very passionate and that's exactly what we need right now. So absolutely fascinating. I mean, for me, the key messages are, which is something that I had absolutely no awareness of whatsoever, was that not all restorations and and tree planting is equal. And in fact, you know, we're actually talking about two very different things. We're talking about a forest, you know, a healthy, biodiverse forest. And we're talking about tree plantations, which are very different. And that's analogous to the to the agricultural industry where we have, you know, monocrops and we have um, regenerative agriculture, so which are very, like two very, very different things. And they take a completely different approach and they have different outcomes and different quality levels. So that for me is like a completely like eye-opening <laughs> a revelation. I had no idea. In terms of like things that, you know, listeners could do if they were, you know, f- for example, I now buy people trees for their birthdays online. Is there a way to you know, have better awareness as to where you direct your tree planting efforts if you are just, you know, if you're not somebody that's on the ground doing restoration like you are, which is amazing, but if you are somebody who wants to make sure that your dollar is not going to a tree plantation that's just putting more chemicals into the earth and is not contributing to biodiversity, are there ways to make sure that you're supporting community tree product projects as opposed to these big tree plantations? Yeah. Yeah, that's a really, I'm so happy you brought that question up because it's really important. What I want to say to people is looking for the small community projects, definitely I would recommend. And that just takes sometimes a little more research. If you're really committed to the redwoods or maybe you want to support like the Dane Tree Forest in Australia or, you know, I, I think finding finding areas that you really believe in or finding organizations that you really believe in um, is important. And so doing a little research into that. And then I think that the more you do research, the more you'll kind of be able to pick out the organizations that seem a little iffy. There's a lot of large tree planting organizations that partner with big banks that partner with big corporations. And if you want to invest in a holistic tree planting operation, that is not the organization you'll want to go with. Because I would say that's kind of a red flag. If anybody's working with big corporations, big corporations are really only about numbers because potentially they get carbon credits or they get tax credits. So like a big bank, they don't care if it's holistic. They just want to be able to say, hey, I planted a million trees and that means we get a million dollars off our taxes or we get this amount of carbon credits or we get to then say to our customers, yada, yada, yada. But it's not really about a spiritual connection. And and that I think the spiritual connection 
to me is extremely important. I cannot do this work without really tending to the spiritual element of it. And I think when that is stripped away from projects around earth renewal, it will always be missing integrity. And so, um, yeah, I would say like, look to see who, who is partnering with those tree planting organizations that you may want to give to. You can also, I feel like in a lot of the wording, you can kind of see like, well, what are they saying? Like, what kind of trees are they planting? Who are they planting with? Where are they planting? Sometimes the smaller organizations are harder to find because they may not have as much of a web presence. But maybe you can find them through Instagram, or maybe you can find them through local, even like farmers markets or local events in your neighborhood. And yeah, it does take a little more effort, but the effort is really uh, worth it, I think, because again, like going back to relationship building, I think that we need to be more involved and we can't just think that we can kind of have a like laissez-faire arrangement with our activism or with our investments and hope that they're doing the best they can. I think we do need to be more involved. And I know it's hard and people are busy and blah, blah, blah. But you know what? I think there's ways to get around that type of busyness uh, excuse. And I, I, and I'm saying it as like a, a recovering busyness person. <laughs> I felt like I was just always like, oh, I'm too busy. I'm busy, busy, busy. I'm exhausted. I'm exhausted. And that's how the earth is feeling too. Like the busier and the more exhausted we are, it's most likely related to resources we're also taking from the earth that's also exhausting the earth. So I think we have to really prioritize what we're doing with our time, what we're putting research into, who we're investing in, and how we're investing in ourselves. So it's a little bit of a roundabout response, but I really do trust the people who are listening to be able to find the organizations that they believe are doing the work in a way that is full of integrity and community alliance and um, and really much more thinking about the health for the future. And I'm just thinking like, whenever we travel, we do we buy you know offsets to offset our travel. Because we are originally South African, so we do have to go back there to visit our friends and our family. And so we buy carbon offsets to, to offset that. But I've never, you know, taken the time to, I mean, I had a look at what projects this particular carbon offsetting company, you know, invests in. And I thought that they looked kind of cool and interesting. And a lot of them were in Africa for me, which was important. And, um, but I didn't, you know, I didn't go down the next level of detail to see, like, really what are they planting and what are they doing so I think that's a great point and uh and it's a it's a great call to action for anybody who wants to sort of responsibly plant trees if that makes sense so thanks for that insight that is a, a real learning for me and I'm sure for many listeners but this also kind of brings us on the topic of quality of forests I know that you are very passionate about old growth forests and there's a there's a really great chart on your website which talks about how trees are amazing carbon absorbers, in particular redwoods. But there's this incredible difference between old growth and new growth redwoods. So keen to understand, you know, maybe you can share a little bit more about sort of that value of old growth forests and why it's so critical that we protect what's left of them. Well, old growth is one of my favorite things to talk about. <laughs> uh, and I... I I'm completely obsessed with old growth forest. I used to 
I was I I was kind of an old growth chaser for a long time where I would study maps for hours upon hours and I would search down dirt roads to find the little patches of old growth that remain. Statistics show that we have somewhere between two to four percent of all old growth left globally in the entire world, which is an insane statistic to even wrap my mind around how there's so little old growth forest left. And old growth means that it's never been touched, right? Thank you for bringing that up. So old growth has a bit of a, (laughs) there's people that kind of argue. Some people say it's primordial forests, which like you said, have never been touched. Some people say it's over 100 years, over 200 years old. Let's just say for the sake of this conversation, we're talking about forests that um, have either never been cut or are somewhere haven't been well if they have yeah haven't been logged for let's say two to three hundred years which if they were logged turn to three hundred years ago that was not logged in the same way that logging is done now right like two or three hundred years ago they were logging by horse it was, a, it was a totally different story and they did take huge huge trees even by horse i mean i look at archival photos of the redwoods when they were logged about 150 years ago and it was insane what they did to the forest even before big machines were invented but for this for the sake of this conversation we can kind of talk about 300 to 1000 thousands upon thousands year old forest now to me old growth forests are important on so many levels now there's an ecological level that we could talk about in terms of just the, the sheer diversity of an old growth forest. Um, and when I talk about diversity, I'm not just talking about that there's a bunch of different types of trees or plants, but even on one old growth redwood, for instance, there could be thousands upon thousands of different fungal species, different epiphytes, lichens, bushes, birds. I mean, there's, there's like the marbled murelet that needs old growth to survive. There's um, the black, uh, like in, in Alaska, in the Tongass National Forest, the Sitka black-tailed deer needs old growth forest to survive. So there's so much diversity that lives upon and relies upon old growth forests. They also sequester, like for instance, old growth redwoods sequester more carbon than any tree in the world. They're also important in a sense too, because ecologically, I was speaking with Peter Wellenbin, who wrote The Hidden Life of Trees, and he brought up a really interesting point that trees that grow slower under canopy are are healthier than trees that are like, you know, if you're if you have a clear cut and you just plant trees directly in in the sunlight. They also are getting messages and nutrients from the mother trees, through the root systems, through the mycelial webs. So when you're having these trees uh, growing up within old growth forests, because we also have to remember an old growth forest doesn't mean that every tree is old. It could mean like there's a 3,000-year-old tree and then there's a three-year-old tree that's growing off of that 3,000-year-old tree. It's multi-generational. And so the nutrients and the messages that are being sent through the old trees to the younger trees and plants are are really important ecologically. But even I think about spiritually speaking, um, when I've talked to friends and uh, friends also who are indigenous, they speak about how 
the spirits and the stories of their ancestors live within the old growth forest. And when the old growth forests are cut, those spirits no longer have a place to live. And we could also imagine too, um, I was speaking with Melanie Brown, who is uh, an indigenous land defender in the Tongass and in Bristol Bay, Alaska. And she was saying, if we lose all of the old growth forest, how will we even know how to restore forests that have been damaged? They are our teachers. They are the ones that we can look to, to learn how we can move forward. Without them, we lose so much wisdom, thousands upon thousands of years of wisdom and growth to even understand how we could possibly move forward from this point, let alone all of, like I was saying, the connections that are happening underground, through the trees, um, the, the aerosols that are released through the needles of the trees, um, and the diversity that grows in an old growth forest is is insane. Like I, I don't remember the exact numbers, but something like you take the soil from an old growth forest and just the richness in diversity of the fungi and bacteria is outstanding where we're not going to find that in a younger forest. And then again, like kind of speaking more on the esoteric side of things, they're absolutely stunning. It's a cathedral. It, it I mean, it's like nothing else. I I remember before I really understood the difference between old growth and second growth and third growth. And it was more of a somatic sense, that intuition feeling when, when I was in an old growth, oh my gosh, like just the breath that I would get and the inspiration and the quality of, of connection was so incredible. And another thing that Peter Wellenbin said that I still remember is um, they had done studies in Europe when people would go into old growth forest versus forests that were like how pines from Northern Europe have been planted in Central Europe for logging, even though they used to be oak woodlands. And he actually, they, I, and I don't, I don't want to quote him wrong, but I think something like there was a study that was done that actually showed that the trees released, um, a type of hormone or something that was full of a type of anxiety because they had been cleared and they had been mistreated. And again, like people would then pick up on that type of, whether it was a hormone release or something, like they would feel the anxiety that the trees were basically screaming wow. out that they were not, they were not treated, uh, rightfully and so I like I, I know I know I'm not saying this exactly right but that's the sense that I remember from it and so um I guess like how to end this response is we know some of the reasons of why old growth is so important ecologically culturally um climate you know we, we can we can write reports academic reports scientific reports on why it's important, or we could hear from spiritual leaders why they're important. Um, but overall, I think that we just don't even understand how important they are. I think we only have scratched the surface of the magnitude of wisdom that these forests hold. And, um, and I don't think that we're ever meant to fully grasp it. And I think that's part of the awe and that's part of the reverence and that's part of the humility that we as humans need to be standing in 
when we look at these places that have held it down for so long. And now this is this is also something that you covered in a film last year. I I read that you made an amazing film in 2019 called When Old Growth Ends. Perhaps you'd like to share a little bit more about it. Yeah, well, that film it was a short mythopoetic really offering to the forest of the Tongass, which is a 17 million acre national forest in southeast Alaska. And it's a temperate rainforest full of Sitka spruce and yellow cedar and Douglas fir and red cedar and um, Alexander Archipelago wolf and, and many other incredible creatures. And like I had said, there's very, very, very few old growth forests left in the world. And the insanity to be clearing the last 2% of all old growth remaining is crazy. Now, to add to that craziness, in this instance, it's on public land that technically American citizens own. And to add more to the craziness is that it's actually subsidized with taxpayer dollars because logging and old growth logging specifically is not um, it's not profitable because it's actually so expensive to cut these old growth that taxpayers are having to pay millions upon millions of dollars to private logging companies mm. to be able to log the trees. <laughs> so it's like, what God, are what a we myth. doing? Like not even profitable. We're literally having to pay to cut these last remaining old growth trees. This is, these are the living libraries left on this planet. Like these are the Noah's Ark of genetic diversity. So it, it was just so insane for me to learn this. Um, and so I, I'd gone up to Southeast Alaska and I had sat with these trees and with some of the indigenous matriarchs of this area. Um, and, and it was the ground zero of old growth logging in, in Southeast Alaska. And the film is really, it's, a, it's an offering. It's an esoteric existential questioning of what is leading us to even be able to do something so monstrous how can we even be at a place where this is this is even happening and so although it does talk a little bit about um the logistics of it to an extent and definitely brings in the relationship with the salmon the salmon are inextricably tied to these temperate rainforests. And the reason why the trees are so big, the biggest in the world, um, well, the redwoods are, but the temperate rainforest in general is because the salmon bring in nitrogen from the oceans and feed these trees. And so we're seeing massive salmon collapse on the West Coast. California, Oregon, Washington, British Columbia have already collapsed. Alaska is has been collapsing more recently and is very much in collapse now. And when we cut the old growth, we are cutting the cathedrals for the salmon. And we, when we don't have the forest, the salmon have no place to come home to. So we do talk a bit about that in the film. And yeah, it's really just this deep questioning of how do we pierce this broken machine mind with purpose? How can we get out of this fear of scarcity that allows us to take the very last tree or the very last wild fish. And it went along with a campaign to make public comments uh, to say, no, we will not, as U.S. citizens, allow 
our national forest land to be clear cut with our taxpayer dollars. We are asking to keep this thing called roadless rule in place, which is saying we don't want any more roads built in this forest and we don't want any more logging done because roads we have to understand are the beginning to the end. And I never really understood that. I just thought a road is a road, but really roads are built to extract and take things out. And so anytime, and this is something for everybody to know, anytime there are roads being proposed in your area, please have a big red flag question mark in your mind of why and who is building that road and where are they trying to get and what are they trying to take out? So um, that's a bit about what the film was and what it was connected to with Roadless Rule. And the public comments were submitted in December. We have not heard back with what is at stake. It took 20 years to pass Roadless Rule in the first place, but then two years after it was passed, the state of Alaska sued for it to be reopened because they wanted to be exempted from this Roadless Rule and say, well, actually, we don't want this roadless rule. We want to be able to build roads, log, and mine. And hopefully we have enough public citizen support to say, well, sorry, (laughs) you can't do this. And I think just to kind of zoom out, uh, larger than roadless rule in Alaska and the Tongass, we all have to get to a place if we care. Now, if we don't care, then I guess we can keep being... Uh, extractivist, (laughs) um, you know, jerks. But if we do care, which I'm sure everybody listening to this podcast cares deeply, we have to get to a point where we just say no, not maybe not, oh, darn, but like we actually say, no, you won't do this. And we have to put our foot down in a very courageous way and organize within our communities and outside of our communities to put enough force to lay the law down and say, you're not going to do one more extraction project in my home. Mm-hmm. You're not going to build one more dam. You're not going to take one more tree. Like some, it has to stop. But the only way it's going to stop is if we either like run out of fossil fuels, which now we're figuring out ways that we may not need fossil fuels to keep extracting, <laughs> or like it's going to take very courageous people to stand up for what is right. And so I would say anybody listening, please, please step into that role of being that courageous person. And if for some reason you personally cannot be a person on the front lines, then support the people on the front lines, whether that's financially, whether that's cooking, whether that's offering your building skills, your massage skills, your healing skills, your writing skills, your legal skills, whatever it is, we really need to come together and either be in the front line defending the land or be supporters of the people who are there. Absolutely. That's a, that's a very, very strong call to action right there for our listeners. Thank you, Ayana. Now, speaking of courageous people, I just want to touch on your podcast because this to me is, is something, you know, having, having now been running a podcast for a couple of years and we only have like 50 episodes, I'm just completely in awe that you have 165 episodes and you are able to release one every week and you have such incredible guests on your podcast. So I just, I just want to touch on that for a sec because, you know, when we started our podcast, we did it in, a, you know, in part for ourselves to learn about sustainability and conservation mm-hmm. because we had no exposure to it. 
we just had no idea and we just had this urge to learn yeah. and it has worked you know we've learned so much from people like you being on our podcast um like i have done in this in this episode but i imagine that in, in many ways you've also learned and been touched by very some very impactful moments on your podcast are there any sort of stories that you've had or moments that you've had on your podcast that are particularly powerful for you from a learning point of view Ooh, to be honest i feel like every week i feel shattered and reshaped and molded. There's a few of the last few episodes that I can think of. There was um, slowing down in urgent times with Bio Akomalafe that really struck me. And then um, an episode with Dr. Max Liberon on, I forgot the title, but it was something in a plastic world. She She's a feminist, anti-colonial marine plastic scientist from Greenland and oh my gosh she just blew my mind totally fascinating woman and then the other one that I can think of off the top of my head is Dr. Kyle White on the colonial genesis of climate change and but like I said I mean those are just three that I can think of but every one that I've had I feel like I come away from that interview and even if in the moment I don't feel changed um (laughs) Or even if in the moment I don't feel like something, I notice a week later or a month later, six months later, I'll be, I'll, I'll have shifted the way that I consider certain things, or I'll notice that that interview actually has restructured the way that I'm doing certain projects. And so, yeah, I feel like I am completely inspired and really like tangibly inspired by uh, each of the guests that come on yeah it really is an incredible medium of storytelling podcasting I find it such an authentic way to tell stories and and speak to people like like you have on your podcast that are just so incredible that you wouldn't otherwise be able to hear from in such a sort of deep deep way it really mm. is it really is yeah. cool now reading your work and listening to you speak it's clear that you are very connected I mean, you know, in yourself, you're connected to the earth, you're, you're, you're very spiritual, you feel things deeply, you're exceptionally creative, and you use this creativity to communicate beautifully in your storytelling. I mean, if anybody spends time on your website reading, they'll see that it's just, your words are just very touching and, and meaningful. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, on the, I was reading the about page of, your, of, your web, of the For the Wild website, and you, you have on there what I would call a framework, but <laughs> you probably have a better name for it. But you collect your thoughts on what we need to do as humanity into sort of four buckets, which are reconnect, renew, resist, and revere. And under each of those, you have a few paragraphs. And I just really love the words that you write under each of these, but I, I would never be able to do them justice. So I thought maybe you could share a couple of thoughts on on, on your perspective on what now needs to happen for us to uh, underscore this paradigm shift from human supremacy towards deep ecology, as you describe. That was actually written a long time ago. And really? it still feels very, yeah, yeah, that was written, gosh, like, Ooh, uh, probably six, seven years ago. And wow. it still feels really, um, it still feels really true. And I guess to me, when I think about resisting, that's like saying no, it's the front line, it's the direct action, it's the um, just 
really resisting against industrial civilization and all that that brings. And then in terms of the uh, reconnect, we've talked about that too. It's reconnecting to intuition. It's reconnecting to the land. We have been connected. It's not as if this is like a new thing for us. As humans, we all have had our ancestors who have been extremely connected to the land or they wouldn't have survived. They didn't have a choice to not be connected to the land at some point within our lineage. And not only do we have it in our blood, it also, on a spiritual level, I don't think there's anything more fulfilling than connecting to the earth and connecting to our loved ones and in our relationships. The revere is... Um, I think in order to connect and to be an earth steward, we need to revere and be in awe. Like we are just these humble humans. We're not the saviors. We're not going to like fix anything. We're not going to be the ones who, who, you know, I think we got to get out of that mindset and be like, we can be humble servants of the earth. We can be humble devotees. And that's really beautiful. And we have to, I think, get to that space where we are in reverence to. Um, and and then the renew, that kind of goes into the restoration, that we are living in a time where we have been a part of a system that has destroyed and raped and pillaged almost the majority of this planet at this point. And so how do we renew our spirits, but like actually tangibly renew the land um, in with integrity. And so it kind of it does sum up a lot of what we talked about. But yeah, that's, that's kind of what I, I think about with those four R's. So building on that, if you could have one single message or piece of advice truly heard by every person on the planet, what would that be? I think the simple message is slow down and create space to love a hell of a lot deeper. And I think if we're able to get out of that rat race mentality and busyness, productivity mentality, the earth can rest and we can rest within a type of fulfillment that is not about extracting resources, that is about our relationships and trust and consent and reciprocity. Let's Let's slow down, let's love more and give ourselves a space to really give the attention that a relationship of reciprocity with the earth deserves. Love that. And what's next for for you and for the wild in 2020? I'm guessing there's going to be a hell of a lot of tree planting and land restoration <laughs> and a few other important things coming up. Yeah, well, you know, I'm trying to take a little bit of my own advice with um, slowing down. So I'm not feeling like a chicken with its head cut off <laughs> and feeling like totally crazy and kooky. Um, so there is a bit of just being able to feel feeling into what are the next steps and something that I have appreciated about <laughs> myself is my willingness to not feel like I have to stay in one direction or stagnant. Now, that doesn't mean that I don't feel committed to the tree planting or the podcast. Those aren't going anywhere. But the ways in which to do them, I think, 
will constantly change as information comes in from the outside world. And so um, 2020 to me is about devotion or, well, I, I actually like to say it's about devotion over ambition. And what that means to me is ambition can be really about the ego. It's like, we're going to plant all these trees and we're going to like bake, you know, we're going to save and we're going to la 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 la. But devotion is like that humble reverence of like, oh yes, we're going to do all these things, but we're going to do it from a place of sheer humility and tenderness and real direct uh, clarity. And so, um, there's going to be a lot of that kind of on a emotional level of how we move forward with our work, but we're going to still be doing the podcast every week. And I'm so excited to keep expanding our topics and our guests and the nursery. We're going to just keep chugging along and building this Noah's Ark, this living library of temperate rainforest species. Yesterday we collected black cap raspberries and um, silver leaf and willow and redwoods and so we're just going to keep going with that and uh, really being in devotion to this forest and listening and learning and building community building resilience within our relationships and also looking out for resource extraction pipelines and making a ruckus whether it's pipelines mining logging um oil drilling you know we're gonna keep being on top of that and and resisting and saying no, you know, whatever we can do, whether that's stomping at City Hall or boycotting certain project uh, products, it's going to be always really important for us to stay attuned with that. Very cool. It sounds like it's going to be a very fulfilling year. <laughs> and, and finally, where can people find For the Wild and how do they best support the work that you're doing? We've obviously talked a little bit about the Redwoods Project if, if people want to support tree planting in a very holistic sense, they can support you through, through that project, right? Thank you for asking because it does take financial support to do this work. I have an incredible team of people who work tirelessly and lovingly to create content to really do the reforestation with integrity. And so if people want to support and donate to the 1 million redwoods project they can go on our website at forthewild.world and make a tax deductible donation through our nonprofit if people love the podcast and they really want to support the podcast which we would appreciate so much they could become a subscriber on patreon and we give out transcripts they could also you know just donate through the website if they wanted to in that way as well and otherwise, other things uh, of ways people can find us and what other kind of support we need. If you want to get involved with a project, like if you're in the area and you want to be hands-on with the reforestation, you can email us at connect at forthewild.world. You can follow us on Instagram, which is where we're most lively, but we also have Facebook and Twitter. And our Instagram is for.the.wild. And you can keep up to date with what we're up to there and reshare things when you feel really passionate about it. Um, we also have a newsletter on our website at forthewild.world. And then um, the other thing that is really helpful to us is if you rate us on iTunes, because uh, just with algorithms and all that jazz, it allows more people to see the content, which is really what we want. And I'm sure it's what you want too. When you're putting out content, you want as many ears to be able to dive in as possible. Absolutely. Well, that is 
tons of great ways to support you guys and I will add those links to our show notes so anybody who wants to have a direct link can find them easily. Ayana, that is a wrap. Thank you so much for sharing your story and incredible work. We've, I've so enjoyed chatting to you today and I very much look forward to seeing your 1 million redwoods plus all the peripheral amazing plant life grow. Thanks so much. Have a good one. Ayana is the real deal. We found this conversation so inspiring and hope you did too. Please do support the work that For the Wild are doing in any way that you can, even if this is just simply focusing on your own awareness and intuition and taking the time to slow down and reconnect. If you know anyone that would find this episode of value, please do share. Thank you for listening and we will catch you next time.